1 Corinthians 11, that text is in your bulletin. Bible scholar Craig Blomberg states of this text, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. So as we come to the reading of God's word, if you join me in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would shed your light on us, that being rid of the darkness of our hearts, that we would come to the true light, which is Christ, the light of the world, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God the word of the Lord. Well, that's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. We'll go to the doxology. There are different responses to this text. Some, that's weird. Can we just move on to that chapter in love? Others, See, this is why the Bible is so hopelessly outdated and oppressive. And still others. See, this is why we need to change back to better and clearer times to get out of the mess we're in. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Indeed, hard text force us to work harder. They call us to humility and to carefulness. Many will use the less clear passages of Scripture to get out of obeying the parts that are more clear. Things like, well, nobody's wearing head coverings today, so why should it matter if I'm sexually promiscuous? That is a failure to challenge the sins of our culture. Others fail to see the principle behind the text, and they end up essentially looking Amish. That is a failure to speak intelligibly to our culture. So what are we to do with this? New Testament scholar Richard Hayes has put it well. He said, it will not do, however, to say that the text does not apply to us because it is culturally conditioned. For all texts are culturally conditioned. 
He goes on, the aim of Paul's letter is to reshape his churches into cultural patterns that he takes to be consistent with the gospel. All texts are culturally conditioned. They have to be. They all come from time and space. At the same time, Paul is using his letters in order to have churches whose cultural patterns are consistent with the gospel. Paul is addressing problems of worship in the church. He's going to go on to talk about problems of the Lord's Supper, problems of the use of spiritual gifts. When to challenge culture and when to conform to culture is never easy. And yet, living for the glory of God, it drives all of our practices. How we worship, how we bear His image, it matters. And because Jesus is displayed in the life of His church, we must faithfully live out our faith in the cultures that God has put us in. And to this end, we we see then this interrelatedness of worship issues and gender issues. Looking first then at worship issues, Paul in verse 2, he commends them for maintaining the worship traditions that he has given to them. And he bookends this with verse 16. So between 2 and 16, these traditions. He says there, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practices, nor do the churches of God. We're not left to reinvent the wheel every two or three generations. The Holy Spirit continues to work through the church, convicting, correcting, purifying, and protecting her. And what we see then, there is no such thing as a cultureless worship. The joy of Christianity is that the Son of God comes into the midst of a particular culture, a first century Jewish, Middle Eastern, Roman occupied culture. And yet he is able to transcend that culture in such a way that Paul, the former Pharisee, can look Gentile believers right in the face and say, you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. Praise be to God. Bacon is on the menu. It's not a problem for us. Paul recognizes this. But at the same time, it doesn't mean everything's up for grabs. That's the other error. In worship, Paul makes some clear distinctions in the roles of gender. We'll get to the details in a moment, but a broader principle we can take from this text is that worship to God is done with a distinction between genders. In verses 4 to 7 and 14 to 15, Paul says that men can behave shamefully in worship and women can behave shamefully in worship regarding these gender distinctions. Corinth was a Roman colonized city in Greece. It has elements from both cultures. The idea of praying with a covered head, it it could refer certainly to the Roman practice of putting the, the corner of your robe or shawl over your head when you prayed. And this was done by both men and women, though women were largely excluded in Roman worship practices. Not so in Christian worship. Both are included as we see here. Then in verse 4, Paul, he literally says, praying with that which comes down from your head. It can mean, it can mean something like the covering of a veil or a shawl, a robe, or long hair, or a particular hairstyle that one would be wearing. And even in the early Greek commentators on this text, they were divided over which Paul meant. You can't say with certainty. And that's good news for us because it forces us to think through and make application driven from the principles which Paul is using. 
The point is not to make us all wear veils or to have a particular braided hair of some kind. The point is to maintain cultural distinctions that we all understand. It doesn't mean that anything goes, but it does mean that we need to be able to communicate the gospel truth in a way that people get. If you insisted on wearing a particular head covering or hairstyle today, the very meaning that you would be trying to communicate would be utterly lost in our culture. No one would get it. Now, probably not so for Middle Eastern cultures. They'd understand it. For the Corinthians, some were were using hairstyles in a way that violated cultural sensibilities by an improper use. It was disruptive to their culture. So to insist that we reinstitute, reinstate this, the very purpose and the meaning for doing so would be unintelligible to us. Not to them, but to us. So when Paul says in verse 14 that it is a dishonor for men to have long hair, he's speaking during a time when men often had shoulder-length hair. These external things change. We've all seen those pictures. Go back to masculinity, 15th, 16th century. Men in leggings and wigs and massive frilly collars. It would be, ah, no way would I wear that. Yes, you would. You would have worn it because that's the time you would have lived in. And you would have said things like, oh, man, that guy's not wearing a wig. And you would have said something like that. What do you thought about it? That is the nature of culture. So to take a particular freedom and liberty that Paul has been talking about and to use it to flaunt against cultural norms is wrong. That's not love, and it hinders the communication of the gospel. If I were to stand up here in a floral pattern skirt, it would not be okay. But if I was in Scotland ah, in a plaid kilt, that would be just grand. What's the difference? I mean, we're talking about a couple yards of cloth, about the same amount of coverage. Are we not free in Christ? Why should this make a difference to us? What matters a lot. One is a violation of a cultural distinction between men and women. The other is not. But why does this distinction matter? And that takes us into gender issues. This section of Paul, it continues to be hotly debated. Some think that Paul makes no distinction between men and women in worship that has anything to do with a male or female hierarchy or subordination. Others see the very main point of the section is to demonstrate male authority. One of the flashpoints is in verse 3, this, the Greek word for head, which was what we have in our text. The group that sees no distinction advocates that it means source or origin, like the head of a river is the source of the river, the origin of the river. By emphasizing this, you are saying that Adam was the source, the origin of Eve. The group that sees a clear distinction teaching of subordination, they want to emphasize that head means authority, leadership, like the head of state, the head of a clan. And by emphasizing this, they want to say that women are subjected to men in areas of authority. The problem is that this word head, like in English, means both of these and much more. They're not mutually exclusive. To say that Paul does not have any hierarchical emphasis here in the rest of the passage makes it unintelligible. 
but he's also maintaining an equality in the value of worship. Paul has said, Christians are to maintain gender distinctions in worship. But why? In part, Paul answers some of the why by pointing to a creational order. In verse 7, he says that man is the image and the glory of God, that woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Paul appeals to this creational order, not just here. He does so in uh, 1 Timothy 2. Man was created first. There is a certain pride of place given to this. But why? I believe what a helpful answer to our dilemma, in part anyhow, rests in Paul's Trinitarian theology that he consistently applies. That's why verse 3 is so important. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Understanding head exclusively as source doesn't help us out. How does one speak of God as the source of Christ when the Son of God is fully God? And the Godhead has always existed in this Trinitarian distinction. Within the Godhead, there is an eternal equality of being. No eternal subordination. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Yet from all eternity, this one God exists in dynamic relationship of the three persons in one being. God's relational. And it only makes sense that this man who is created in his image and likeness should also be relational. This woman he created in his image and likeness should also be relational. In time and space, the Father brings glory to the Son by sending Him as the Redeemer. The Son shows love to the Father by willingly submitting to Him as the Redeemer. And the Spirit expresses this bond of love proceeding from Father and Son and back and forth, this mutual relationship and interchange. So putting this together, one commentator notes, Christ's relationship to the Father has nothing to do with self-glory. It's not an involuntary or imposed subordination, but it's an example of shared love. It is this love which controls the use of freedom and brings glory to the other through the right use of these distinctions. Brian Chappell, this idea of headship receives biblical sanction only when it is governed by godly purposes and practice. You see, we are to love in a way that brings glory to another. Both men and women are the glory of another. Both men and women are made in God's image and glory. But the creational order is used by Paul to show how human relationships reflect the relationship of the Son on earth to the Father in heaven. There's an aspect of glory as a husband in authority. There's an aspect of the wife's glory that includes a Christ-like submission. These things interrelate. And to keep this from being misapplied, Paul states in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from the man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. You all come from God. Neither is independent of the other. We're dependent creatures on one another and certainly on God. But your created gender is intended to display the glory of God in a unique way. It it, it complements one another as the Father and the Son do. 
equality in being, neither has a greater intrinsic value, yet a distinction in relationship of persons. From verse 4, it's not altogether clear why a man with a head covering is shameful. It wasn't Paul's day, we're not really sure why. It was actually a part of, of Roman pagan worship, which men did. Maybe Paul is actively working against pagan practices at this point. Also, a married woman in that time, when she went out in public, would have had a shawl or a veil or something signifying that she was a married woman, similar like we have a ring. It may well have been that what was happening in the practice of the church was going against this and would have been confusing to their culture. It would have been disruptive to their witness as Christians. That's why Paul says in verse 13, Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature, and the word nature, he's saying a long-established custom, doesn't that teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. There's a distinction being made here. An absolute in terms of the distinction, but not an absolute in terms of what is being signified. Now, verse 10 is quite puzzling, so here's my best stab at that. What does all this have to do with the angels? Because of the angels. Our worship to God is displayed before the heavens. Even as we pray for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven, our worship can be displayed to the glory of God or it can be disgracefully to take away from his glory. And to do so is an affront to the very angels in heaven who sit before him. They too are created to reflect God's glory in proper relationship and they are zealous for God's honor. Paul is reminding the church, it's not just about you. It's never just about you. It's cosmic. God's relationship to his created order, his relationship to the the church is cosmic. It goes beyond just what you see. Well, the last point, if cultural distinctions can change, How do we know if we're glorifying God in a way that honors Him? And that's what makes it so hard. How do you you keep a stationary principle in a moving sea of culture? And and here's where the principle, or people try to make the understanding of culture to be timeless and a changeless biblical one. It doesn't work. We know that we're not to blur the distinctions between male and female. We know that. But that changes in culture. When Paul says in verses 14 and 15 that even nature says hair is a glory for a woman but can be shameful for a man if he looks like a woman, he's not necessarily laying down some timeless principle about the length of hair. For masculinity and femininity are not strictly tied to hair length. We know that. But nearly every culture on the planet has a clear way of distinguishing between men and women, and they all know when you've crossed that line. There's a line, and when you cross it, everybody goes, you crossed it. The principle is, don't cross the line. Knowing that that line is going to look different in different times, in different places. But whatever that line is that you find yourself in, don't cross it. Well, what is... Clothing and style matter. Italian author Umberto Eco 
I am speaking through my clothes. I am speaking through my clothes. These externals give a message. So instead of being in front of you in a little plaid dress, if I instead come out here and I'm dressed in a 1940s German SS military uniform, that's going to speak. And you're all going to be running for the door. You would naturally freak out about that. But what if I take that same uniform back to the church in 1820? And all you go is, well, that's different. Wouldn't have any connection. None at all. Because how we dress, these things are culturally derived. They speak volumes in times and places that may change to something else. I am speaking through my clothes. Paul has said repeatedly, you are free in Christ. But Christ-like freedom is always expressed in love for one another, in a godly submission and a leading through serving each other. Gender equality does not mean gender sameness. That is a problem for our current culture. It hasn't been in times past, but that's one of our problems. Gender equality does not mean gender sameness. And just as Jesus brought glory to the Father in all that he did, so you and I are to bring glory to the Father in all that we do. Our worship matters. We are to reflect something greater. It's never just about us and our preferences. We point people to something beyond the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so what that means is we have the hard work of trying to figure some of this out in a multi-generational setting. The unity of the church is so important that we have to actually wrestle with this with one another. Because different ages here see this differently. Go back 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 years. And there is just a swath, currents of difference between us. And the easy solution is just, well, let's just have little churches of our demographics. And that's what people sometimes do. But that is actively working against the unity of the spirit that God has called us to. We must then listen carefully to one another. Generations listening to each other. Not just saying, oh, you don't get it. Or you don't get it. And splitting the time and the energy it takes to hear in these cultural moments that we can have such an emotionally charged connection to is difficult. And because of our love for the church, because of the Holy Spirit working by, with, and through His Word, we then step towards one another to hear, to understand. Maybe differ, but we do so all in the freedom of the gospel that tells us you are free then to lay down your rights in order to pick up somebody else's to serve them. That's the starting point. Men and women were made to show forth glory of another. And you and I get to show forth that glory of God in differing ways. In ways that call us to serve, to love one another, and to prefer their needs above our own. 
That is a challenge for every age. It is a challenge for the church from the beginning till now. And it is the high calling to be the bride of Christ. Because in the very cosmic sense, this little church in Kalispell, Montana, before all of creation and the angels lifts up worship to Almighty God in a way that others can see and see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, the sweet aroma of Christ. And brothers and sisters, it will come as a cost. And we must wrestle with that cost. Pray with me. Father God, we do thank you and praise you. Indeed, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord God, you have given us these marvelous distinctions. And Lord, we would pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to live this in the time and the place in which you've called us. Father, we pray that you would give us humility along with conviction. Lord, we want to see your name glorified here in the Flathead Valley and beyond. May you be pleased to use us to display the wonder of the gospel of Jesus here. And we ask this all through Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.